0: You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist Dr. Lee Friedman. Overuse injuries to tendons are among the most common problems that our patients present to us with. Are there new insights from biomedical engineering that can help us in our approach to these bothersome problems? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me is Dr. Louis J. Seslowski, Professor of Orthopedic Surgery and Bioengineering, Vice Chair of Research in Orthopedic Surgery, Director of the Pennsylvania Center for Musculoskeletal Disorders, and Director of the McKay Orthopedic Research Lab at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Seslowski. Thank you. I often hear the terms tendinitis and tendinosis thrown around interchangeably. Are these really the same processes?
1: They're not the same processes, but you're right, they are thrown around interchangeably. So just as its name says, tendinitis is an itis. Itis means inflammation. And historically, it has believed that tendon injuries as a result of overuse, for example, should be classified as tendinitis due to the inflammatory nature of the disease. And more recently, while that term has kind of stuck in the lay literature, More recently, the term tendinosis, and osis is usually characterized more as a degenerative disease. Tendinosis has been the term of preference because, in recognition that inflammation is really not the critical component to that disease process. It's more of a degenerative process. So tendinosis is generally the more common term medically, while tendinitis will probably stick for another generation in the lay literature.
0: And and so that immediately, to my mind, suggests that we're going to have much different approaches to these problems if we can make that differentiation.
1: That's exactly right. And trying to treat these conditions based on understanding of the underlying etiology is particularly important if we're really going to get at these diseases. And and this raises the fundamental question, which is how many of us, and I'll confess me included, have taken some anti-inflammatory drug when our tendons hurt. And the question as to other than the analgesia component, which is clearly helpful, whether Mm -hmm. the the anti-inflammatory component is really a critical feature at the time that we're really administering it.
0: Yes, certainly as a primary care doctor, that is my uh, my go-to therapy. And I'm really not feeling that I'm making a differentiation here between a true inflammation or a tendinosis. Now, I know that you concentrate mostly on some of the basic science aspects of this. But from a clinical standpoint, are there ways that I can start to make that differentiation in patients?
1: I think the the only key distinction that one can make at this time is the time course. Is this a condition that occurred relatively acutely? And if so, frankly, you may be looking at something more than tendonitis or tendinosis. Or is it more of a chronic disease? And, And typically, it's more of a chronic disease because the first time a joint hurts, isn't the same week that one sees their doctor. It's usually after a series of events. A runner, for example, has patella tendon knee pain and will take several weeks off from their running regime, will take over-the-counter anti-inflammatories for a period of time. and It's typically not for an extended period of time before someone actually comes to see their doctor for treatment. And at that point, the likelihood of itis, inflammation, playing the most critical role is probably quite small.
0: So a good history, particularly focusing on the time course of the problem, can help us to make that differentiation. That's correct. I suspect that you could have an acute tendinitis on top of a more chronic tendinosis type of problem.
1: Right. This this is not at all to say that the processes involved in inflammation are not present because they are. Whenever one can add, as you say, an itis on top of an osis, right? One can have an inflammatory response in the presence of a degenerative condition, and there is an inflammatory process ongoing. But that inflammatory process, one, is easily managed, and two, at that point in the disease process, while it may be a source of short-term pain, is not the critical feature of the disease that one is going to try to treat long-term. And I think that's an important distinction that we as a community must make in helping understand how we might manage these patients.
0: And for an acute tendonitis, we've got ice, we've got anti-inflammatories. What would be the approach for the tendinosis, the more chronic degenerative process?
1: The more chronic degenerative process obviously will take longer to manage than an acute process is consistent with all other types of diseases or injury scenarios. Uh, Here, the question is, what do we know about the tendon tissue itself and what can be done to alter that process. So what we know about the tendon tissue itself, and in this case, a fair amount is from animal model, because in human conditions, we only see end-stage disease. We only, by the time one is there surgically for a tendonitis, tendinosis-type condition, by the time one is there surgically, that is really end-stage disease. And at, at that point, it's not the kind of tissue you're trying to treat several months or even years earlier. So this is where the role of animal models has proved very useful, where we can evaluate tissue early in the disease process. One can induce injuries consistent with the clinical condition through a variety of mechanisms, intrinsic mechanisms, extrinsic mechanisms, overuse injuries, and evaluate the tissue properties and see what the behavior is. And what we have identified is a change in profile of the organization and the composition of those tendons as opposed to predominant feature being inflammatory cells and things like that. So then it's a matter of what can we do in order to alter those processes once they've presented themselves. And, and that's certainly a much more difficult problem than saying, ice this and take an anti-inflammatory. This is where I think current research is trying to assess alteration. Certainly pharmacotherapies are, are part of the value to processes at this time. Certainly the effect of rest. So, for example, can rest if you take an animal and exercise them extensively and then give them a period of rest. Do those conditions return? And actually some data seems to show that a significant period of rest will begin to reverse those processes. The question of time frame is always an important one. that's a little bit unknown. But certainly rest can play an important role.
0: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I am discussing tendinitis versus tendinosis with Dr. Lewis Saslowski, professor of orthopedic surgery and bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Soslowski, that that is fascinating. How does this translate into common clinical pictures? I, I think of athletes with uh, rotator cuff issues or plantar fasciitis, manual laborers with forearm tendinitis slash tendinosis.
1: One interesting thing here is that all the diseases that you just put forth there all come under the same category of tendinitis tendinosis potentially, but they're actually all very different. So, for example, if you look at the data on rotator cuff tendon overuse. There is some pretty convincing data now that says that the tendon seems to be forming more cartilaginous features. So it's becoming more fibrosis. It's becoming more, say, type 2 collagen, agrican. These are This is the collagen and the proteoglycan that are most consistent with cartilage as opposed to most consistent with tendon, which would be other of those parameters. And what we find in such as rotator cuff tendon overuse, we find that this change to cartilaginous properties results in an inferior mechanical capability, in an inferior mechanical integrity. So in, in these cases, in the laboratory at this point, which is really where this work uh, still sits, is we're, we're evaluating approaches where we can try to reverse that. We can try to reverse those processes. But for example, for patellar or t- again tendinosis, that does not seem to be the case. In the same model system where rotator cuff tendon turns cartilaginous, patellar tendon does not. And so I think we need to think about these conditions if we're looking to treat the underlying etiology and the underlying pathogenesis to treat these conditions as as independent issues that deserve their own evaluation and their own treatment. And unfortunately, as I mentioned before, most of the data we have is end-stage disease, which is not the disease we're most excited about treating. And that's the little bit of a limitation in terms of where we are. And this is where current research is really trying to, to distinguish so that we can target treatments for the specific diseases in specific locations because they are different.
0: That's fascinating to me because we have tendons, we have muscles, but the degenerative process within these clearly is very different depending on the precise site that you're talking about.
1: Well, this is because often the etiology is different. The supraspinatus tendon of the rotator cuff, for example, passes through an enclosed arch. So so that in this scenario, extrinsic factors, extrinsic mechanisms such as acromial impingement, the acromion, the acromial ligament, and the coracoid, which form that arch through which the supraspinatus tendon must pass, that arch can create an extrinsic compression. And such an arch is not present, for example, in the patella tendon or the Achilles tendon. It's just not part of the anatomic feature. And that anatomic feature, although they're both tendons, They both connect muscle to bone, which is what a tendon does. They're different. They're fundamentally different. So at one level, one might say they're the same thing. But when you talk about mechanism of injury, mechanism of of disease progression, which is what you're going to try to alter and, and ideally reverse, the processes are different. And this is why thinking about things more globally may not be the approach that bears fruit in the end. These
0: individual areas are being looked at in in the lab. Is there any advice now that you can give to clinicians with regard to any of these specific areas other than the
1: rest that you had talked about? Well, certainly rest is going to be at this point the hallmark. I think at this point, most of the treatment approaches are still laboratory-based, like I said, because of our inability to gather the right tissue. So we are heading towards clinical trials based on our animal studies that are identifying approaches that can be used in targeted areas. At at this moment, we're unfortunately not quite ready to be able to identify a particular course of treatment for a particular joint other than acknowledging the fundamental differences that exist from one site to another in terms of the way they might be managed, at this point philosophically, rather than in practice with a particular recipe or protocol.
0: And with regard to rest, are there any broad guidelines? A patient will ask me, when can I start throwing a ball again? When can I go back to work again? How much rest seems to be enough?
1: Yeah, well, certainly the first issue in these kinds of things is always pain limited. You know, if you look at why humans get, again, go back to rotator cuff injuries and there's no animal model that has it, well, the answer is humans are not that smart. When we have tendon injuries, we, we throw the baseball again. We're playing with our kid in the backyard, and we continue to throw, or we're playing on our team or at our job. We continue to do it. The animal species, other than humans is smarter. They stop. When it hurts, they don't do it anymore. And so pain limitation, I think, is certainly the key factor. So pain limitation is enough to remove the inciting factor, but it's probably not enough to reverse the process. So what's going to happen if we only use pain limitation as a guideline, and it's certainly a good first start, but if we only use that as a guideline, we're probably not going to get true healing. We're only going to get back to where we were when we started, which is probably not quite good enough. So that's the underestimate of appropriate time, but certainly not sufficient time to get to ultimate tissue healing.
0: Well, this is very exciting to me, a whole paradigm shift perhaps yet to come in our approach to soft tissue injuries, tendinitis, and now focusing more on tendinosis, the more chronic degenerative changes that go on in our tendons. Thank you very much, Dr. Soslowski. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at reachmd.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand
1: features. Thank you for listening.